welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Joe Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves where this conversation takes place. Land which was never ceded. Land where communities came together to eat seasonally, locally and without exhausting resources. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and rising. Today I'm talking to Ben Parkinson at Pippi's Kiosk. I went into Pippi's halfway through May to talk to co-owner and chef Jordan Clay. I am a long-time fan of Pippi's because of its setting right on the beach looking out across Port Phillip Bay and, of course, because of the food. When I spoke to Jordan, I just put an offer in on an apartment in Port Melbourne and I thought to myself, imagine if I get this and I can just walk down the beach and have a glass of wine and some fish at Pippi's. So, when we were successful with the apartment and got over the move, that's exactly what I did. Ben is head chef at Pippi's and on the day I went in for that living life like it's golden moment, he had a sardine special on that blew my mind. Like, actually did. <laughs> Plump butterflied sardines served with lardo on pickled daikon and grated frozen kumquat. Dish of the year so far. So, of course, I suggested to Ben that I come back and have a chat with him. He graciously accepted, even coming in on his day off, which we discussed, along with his thoughts on chef life, why he thinks cooking is a craft and not an art, but he absolutely loves it, and of course, we discussed the sardines. Ben is thoughtful and articulate, and clearly passionate about what he does, and I could have talked to him for hours. We certainly packed a lot into an hour, and you are in for a treat. How's your day been? Uh, pretty relaxing, if I'm honest. That's good. It's been a nice surprise. Like I said the other week, Mondays I try to have this a, uh, a proper day off and not really talk to anybody, be it reps, be it, you know. Otherwise, this job can be all consuming at times. Oh, I get that. So thank you. I appreciate uh, it's, it. It's why it's, it's, I suppose I should sort of phrase that a bit differently. It's like it's more, if I make the choice to, it's different. You know? Yeah. Whereas, like, sometimes it's just like the places I work, you just, if you don't make, if you don't make your happy intention to make time for yourself, you never will. That's what Jason um, said down at Stoke House as well, is one of the ways that he ensures well-being for staff is that that's a thing they actually, you know, they, they pointedly say is don't look at your phone any day off. It must be hard though. Yeah, I mean, Jason would want that for his guys, but I guarantee you he's on call 24-7. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's different depending on the role that you have, obviously, which I think that's kind of a given. It's like in any job. Um, but there also has to be... You have to be able to turn around and say, you know what, I need time for me, you know? Yeah. The joys of us here being closed Monday, Tuesday, it makes that easier. So even for Jordan and myself, or even Tommy, the front of house business owner, um, restaurant manager, director, whatever, you know, whatever the hat he's wearing on the day. Um, we all know that if there's something we need to discuss, we'll make time to discuss it. But otherwise, like, you know, Tommy's got a young 
family and Jordan's got a partner and a life and all the rest of it. So if you don't sort of carve that time out, like Absolutely. you'll never see them, you know, more so I would say than your regular job for want of a... Oh, look, absolutely. And I'm not, I don't, and I'm not going to compare teaching to um, hospitality at mm. all. But there is... You still um, take work home with you and quite a lot of it. Yeah, and there's also know. an expectation from parents and, you know, students that they can contact you at any time. And so we've got some really strict protocols around that as well. And yes. I think that it, it's important and it's good if the place that you work supports you on that as well. Like yes. By putting in those yes. protocols and that there is an understanding that you yes. don't need to reply to them on that day yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. So. Um, it's one of the best things. Well, one of the great things that Tommy and Jordan are both very adamant and passionate about is the three of us have all worked for restaurants and the industry, for want of a better term, for places which weren't that. Yeah. You know, and I was talking to a friend of mine this morning and he was telling me about a restaurant that um, expects staff to forage on their days off and if they don't they kind of get treated poorly and, and all this sort of stuff and it's just like there's no space for that in the industry anymore personally in my opinion and I don't mean to say that to like put people offside or things but it's just like you either value your staff or you don't you value their time or you don't Yeah. where's the exploitative line you know the industry is changing and growing and transitioning you look at Nova for instance if you want to use that as a archetype they've even registered now and said hey you know we want to pay our stages and things like that so that whole you should be grateful for the opportunity to work here is kind of in the bin or at least it's 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 on the curb it's waiting you know it's at the door it's waiting to be taken out of the bin i wouldn't say it's there yet but i would largely say the industry is is transitioning towards a more of a like well we respect you we appreciate you and therefore we value you. Mm. So we do expect a lot from you when you're working. That is just unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your headspace, the job. It's an all-encompassing position, whether you're a young cook or commie waiter through to, you know, a more senior role. Like, it's a, it, it takes all parts of you, you know? Uh, but it doesn't mean it takes your life. And that's right, and it's interesting too, just when you were saying that, I was thinking about lots of places, and I think even just because I've been really immersed in watching two seasons of The Bear, um, like binge watching, so that's all in my head, you know, and they talk about the staff meal as family, um, family meal, I suppose, Um, and and some businesses do talk about, you know, we're all family here, but but I think that can be a dangerous road to go down as well. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I mean it's you know, not your family. <laughs> you uh, you can't cho- you can choose your friends. You can't choose your family. And you want to be families a tight can, unit. Yes, but families, not families can be dysfunctional, and you don't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. We can. That's the joy of Christmas. That's the joy of you know. We all have funny stories and anecdotes about our families, which are humorous, but also like they make you kind of cringe a bit. Mm. But that's also because that's your family. Mm. Your workplace and your friends and everything like that should largely be. A choice should largely be, I respect you, I value you, I, I, I want to grow with you, mm. so that's why we're having a shared meal, that's why we're carving out time to have that meal, you know, uh, not the opposite of that, sort of, excuse me, the opposite of that with the family being, well, we will almost... Uh, 
abusive family dynamic, for want of a less extreme term, be it we will take advantage of you and use all we can because we're using this rhetoric as a guise to hide behind. Mm. You know? Mm. Um, so that, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying this to create issues or... or not at all. It's to just... get people offside, but it's just... I've worked in my own experience, let's put it that way, mm. for places that have, to put it bluntly, taken the piss mm. of my time. Uh, and I've also worked for places which have prioritised it, mm. you know? And I know where I've done my better work. Mm. And I feel like that's kind of... that The proof's in the pudding for want of a less cooking-based cliche, you know? That's right. That's right. So... How long have you been at Pippi's? Uh, two. Let, let's round it to two years. Just over two years. Okay. Um, and you were in Sydney before that. Yes. Yeah. Where are you from originally? Brisbane. Oh, Brisbane. Okay. Yes, I'm a all over the shop type. You know, done my fair share of travel down the east coast. The only one I haven't done yet is Tasmania, but who knows? Mm. <laughs> That's a bit like New Zealand with its all its, you know, food and. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the thing is, I actually haven't even been to Tasmania. I don't oh. work down there, so that's why it's it's actually wow. my pressing uh, engagements to do this year in November. As a nice. race down there, I want to go compete in. Uh, and I'm going to use that as a bit of a chance to go run up a hill, uh, literally, uh, and see some very good friends down there uh, and eat and drink and embrace, shall we say. Amazing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, from Brisbane, what feels like a lifetime ago now. And so, so little Ben, were you? Did you always know you wanted to be nope. a chef? What was food for you when you were growing up in Brisbane? Uh, food's always had. I get quite. Food's always been a big part of my family, not in the. You know, nonna's making posada sort of that kind of, veil. But my grandmother, who turned ninety-two last week, uh has always put an emphasis on it in the family. She was a, I mean, what we would call a hospitality teacher this day and age, but one of the first ones in Queensland, like, ever. Wow. Uh, at a women's finishing school, and then in a, you know, like, she's... Wow. I wouldn't necessarily call her a pioneer, because she'd probably flog me around the back of the head for saying so. Um, and I, even to this day, I wouldn't go against her. Um, but she has always had a, a love for food. Uh, and I can remember growing up from, you know, earliest memories, um, fortnightly, the family all coming together, be it at my, my house or my home, uh, my grandparents or my aunt and uncle's house on a weekend and, and having a meal and all us kids racing around and running around like lunatics as you do. Um, and there always being a plethora of food and cakes and my grandfather baked bread and I vividly remember, uh, flambéed peaches one year when Jamie Oliver was just becoming a thing you know like I mean it sounds very silly and it sounds very cliched and it sounds kind of to me almost like oh whatever it's another chef using his family story right um but that was never like I want to cook no in high school uh you can ask my parents or anybody that knew me from back then I wanted to be a vet I was adamant I wanted to be a vet that was my whole goal in life I love animals I always have but that was my, my goal. 
Uh, and then, just to cut a very, very long story short, uh, I was looking for a part-time job, as you do when you're a high schooler getting to a certain age. At the end of sort of grade 10, I would have been 14. Uh, and an ad went up at school in our hospitality class saying there's a local functions that are looking for front of house and back of house staff members. I was like, okay, cool, I'll jump in front of house. Um, I was told, I wasn't told, I was guided into the kitchen by the owner. Uh, and to this day, I'm incredibly grateful for that and to that job because I got initiated into a kitchen with, I had, it was me and a chef. Uh, and he, from the first couple of weeks, just was kind of like, yeah, cool, let's get you involved. So it was making Dutch's potatoes, you know, it was doing quite classic style of things, but as a 14 year old, you know, just kind of like, hey, we need your help. Uh, and that definitely grew my love of hospitality because there was no shouting, screaming or nothing. It just wasn't that, it wouldn't have been tolerated. Uh, and I was very welcomed in and I kind of, let's say by the end of the year, sort of a couple of months in, because I started there and on, you know, last term of the year, uh, I was hooked. Wow. I was just like, this is for me. And then, uh, too many years, 17, too many years later, I'm still doing it. I've never done anything else. I've never been to university. I've never looked at any other profession. I've never even had any other form of job, period, than working in a kitchen. Have you had any times where you thought maybe I'd like to find something else? Too many, not too many to count, but yes. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, that's life, right? Um, but I kind of also got to a point where I realised how lucky I was. Mm. When I was a lot younger, I definitely thought like, oh, I could go to uni and do this or do that or whatever. And my family has a doctor, a lawyer, my mother works in medicine, my uncle works in medicine, my father did a lot for Sports Med Australia. Uh, you can see where this is going type thing, like, you know, very academically based family. They were never begrudging to it, they were always very supportive. Um, but definitely over when I was in my younger 20s, you know, like working, you know, 70 to 90 hours a week and things like that, there were definite times where I was like, do I really love this, you know? Uh, and I thought about it, but every time I kind of had those thoughts, something would always kind of happen, whether it be myself making the change of going overseas or moving states or, you know, and really not reigniting the passion, but continuing it, uh, or something just fortuitous would happen and that would, you know, and then I got to an age where I realised how lucky I was when I was looking around at a lot of friends and things like that, that, you know, they were my age and they've had two or three different careers. And that's nothing against them or, you know, everyone's got their own path and all that sort of stuff. But I realised kind of actually how fortunate I was to, at 14 years old, walk into a profession that I have fell in love with and have continued for, the, you know, my life, period. Absolutely, but also it gives you that um, that opportunity to go to different countries yes. and to work in different kinds of restaurants. And this whole idea of um, academia and whatnot, um, <laughs> it's it's a funny one because this is something that's come up a bit. And this is not what you're saying, but I just think about these chefs that say to me, and maybe in the next generation from you, that we're, who were told at school, you're no good at school, you should become a chef. I just do not get that because 
there's so much involved with being a chef. I just think about all of the things you do, and there's no way I could do any of the things that that you do. This whole, um, you, you, especially when you're a head chef, you've got to think about, well, all the way up, but a head chef, you've got to think about um, food costs, you've got to think about thinking about the menu, you're thinking about seasons, you're thinking about um, staffing and well-being, and, all, and then there's so much you're thinking, and then there's all that pressure of time, and putting up all different plates at different, like, I honestly... Then I see these chefs that, that just, you know, go and do a star summary or go and do, like, a collaboration yeah, with someone yeah. and step into someone else's kitchen and they just do, do it. And I'm, I can't even get my head around that. I'm actually due to do one of those in about a month. So, wow. Yeah. Um, it's so impressive. Uh, thank you. Uh, not for myself, but for other people who are actually good at their jobs. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about? But <laughs> that's definitely something I've seen in my time is a transition of kind of the lens of how we view hospitality. Yes. And love it or loathe it, uh, MasterChef is a great arbiter for that. Yeah. It okay. has shone a light on the industry and food and therefore, so, you know, people have started to understand that there's a lot more going on than just the creation side of it or or the ego or whatever it may be, you know. It's, it's I would say, like a multidisciplinary job. I wouldn't personally call it an art form because I don't personally feel like it is. Yes, it is creative, but I would see it more as a craft. That's so funny because that's exactly what Annie Smithers says. <laughs> and I, mean, I love her. She's a legend. And um, she's a legend. And I said to her, oh, you know, so this is, she was one of my first, you know, back in the early days. And she went, it's not an art form. It's, what'd she say? It's like, a, it's a trade. <laughs> I was like, but, but, oh, come on. But uh, I mean, I would personally see it similar to a cabinet maker or or a woodworker or a mason or something like that in the sense of like yes you're working with your hands yes it has an element of creativity to it but it is also something at the most basic principle basic level it is a craft it is we can teach you technique we can teach you recipe we can get you to a certain standard and you can replicate this time and time and time and time again but can people do you think Yes. I, I, not to be crude, but you can teach anybody to cook. I mean, Ratatouille, that movie, is incredibly accurate in the sense that, you know, you can teach anybody <laughs> to cook. It's whether they want to, it's whether they care, yeah. and it's whether they have the discipline to continue to repetition, repetition. It's a thousand hours, isn't that what they say? Oh, absolutely. Ten thousand hours? That... Absolutely. Well, there's that, but then there's also the fact of doing it every night in a restaurant and wanting to do it. I mean, you can teach someone to cook, but that's, that's different to... That definitely leads me to an analogy, which I probably can't say on this podcast. One of the first chefs I ever worked for. It was, let me paraphrase it really, very loosely, which was something along the lines of that you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. But by God, I'm going to drown you. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. He yeah. meant it in the most best of ways, yeah. uh, in the sense of like, you know, you will. Uh, and I look back on it now, and I'm grateful for definitely what he taught me. Um, but I, yeah. Cooking is a craft, and it, it is crux, in my opinion. Hmm. The, 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 the actual physicality of cooking. Sure. My brother, bless him, is an okay cook. But him recently, for instance, to, to give you some context, has been trying to figure out how to cook a perfect steak at home. And he's gone through all manner of YouTube videos and, and tutorials and all that. Some of the stuff he's seen, I'm like, why would you ever do that? Mm. But he doesn't know because he hasn't done it, for instance, like myself or like other cooks that have done it for thousands of times, millions of times. But I've been able to then give him 
input and advice to now where he can do it perfectly. I mean, he's cooking one of them, so it's a lot easier. Yes. However, <laughs> he, I would not say, has the creative understanding or the training and experience to therefore look at it in the creative aspect. To him, a steak is a piece of meat. It's delicious, but that's all it is and all it ever will be. Mm. You know, that's where the creation or the art, if you will, I would say more the creativity comes in, is that's where it comes in. You can teach anybody to cook, but it's then them interpreting it and putting their own voice on it. So interesting you say that, because I was speaking to um, a chef yesterday and um, Ollie at Henrietta, and he was saying how, you know, when it came to cooking Middle Eastern food, he watched lots of YouTube videos and the non is doing it. So, but that's interesting, because if I just watched those, I wouldn't come to it with the same, I wouldn't just be able to do that, whereas a chef who's got the training might watch YouTube videos to, like, give them another insight, but then knows the technique behind it to... Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's the kind of, like, with the experience becomes the lens of perspective and, for, and understanding. So you can look at a technique that you see online and you might not necessarily know the recipe, but you can extrapolate it yourself to be like, okay, I can understand how they've gotten there, but then how do I get there in my own voice? How do I get there in my own way that is reflective of myself and my values? But even then, personally, I feel like that's putting too much emphasis on it. At the end of the day, it's food. Ben Shuri said it years ago best. It all turns to shit in 24 hours. Mm. You know? Like, it's a crude way of looking at it, but I vividly remember that quote from him because it's true. Yeah, Philippa Sibley's also said Yes, it's something that a lot of people (laughs) have said that same, you know, like, I've had various chefs say it similar ways to me over the years as well. It's like, because... Without divulging too much, I have a chronic overthinker. Mm. Uh, and a mentor of mine have once said to me, is like, Benny, just stop thinking about it, just do it. Mm. You know? Uh, and I still talk to the man even this day. Um, but that's, yeah, I mean, everybody has their different lens for cooking, and some people see it more as a creative, some people see it more as an art form, but I see it more as a craft that has a creative voice to it that you can put a creative lens on yes and look it has to be delicious and um tell me about let's just talk about that sardine dish because that like that's craft at its finest thank you i really appreciate that no i'm serious i'm not doing it to flatter you that that i you know that dish just so where do you go so you're thinking okay um where do you go where do you come from where do you start when you are creating a special like that for a dish like that where does it start uh, my love of sardines, mm-hmm. and if I'm perfectly honest, the two years I spent in England working for a guy called Alistair Brooke Taylor, who's back in Australia, actually in Beechworth, um, we did sardines there, we got them on day boats, uh, and we served them completely differently to that, but it was just, I remember how we treated them there, and I always loved them, and his food, and he taught me so much, and yeah, there's a long story there in history which we won't go into, unfortunately. Um, but that's where it started from, was my sardines were on offer, fresh, I love them. I have a history of working with, and that was number one. I wanted to serve sardines. And then I really like the contrast of like that oily fish with like some fat or pork fat or something like that. So hence there was the addition of the lardo. 
sort of kind of balance it so you've got that oiliness you've got that really you know it, it kind of in not in rich flavor but that oily almost sometimes verging on bitter with sardines uh that then you can balance with the fat and then i'm like i want something fresh i need something sort of textural as well because otherwise that's quite one-dimensional um and so pickled daikon was kind of came from an influence of something jordan's done here and done a few times as kind of one of his little sneaky snacks shall we say uh which we do pickled daikon with uh sea urchin but we serve it like you would uh uh anigiri so all like bundled up and everything but i love that texture and that flavor of the daikon so i was like that would work quite well and then citrus is obviously in right now so in my mind i'm like well kumquats are amazing i love kumquats that's a whole other memory of my grandmother me eating them off the tree and her getting very very angry at me because it was only this small tree in a pot plant and i would just eat them whole off the tree my grandfather would be encouraging me to do so but then be like shh don't tell her um so i love kumquats and citrus when it's in um and that's kind of i know it sounds a bit kind of silly but that's kind of how my brain works at least with food is it starts with like what do i want to showcase or what do i what do i want to eat how do i want to eat this and then it will kind of just run its own way and pick things and think about things i'm not very organic or formulaic in how i create food it's very disjointed it's very chaotic sometimes that i will pick a a piece of a food let's say whether it be vegetable or whatever or a pastry and and sometimes it will be because i have a very myopic idea that is just i want to do this and then i will make sure everything works around it or other times it's like the sardine dish was which was just quite organic and i want to eat them but i want to balance it with something fatty something pickled something textural almost just ticking the boxes you know of like well in a classic style you know let's go back to my apprenticeship it's like well you need to have uh garnish you need to have a meat you need to have a sauce you need to have you know it was almost in my head ticking those boxes of like you need to have something pickled something fresh something fatty something you know to balance all that out um and that's not to try and make it sound simple but for me that was just a very organic dish that i just felt would work uh unfortunately it did <laughs> uh sometimes that's not the case sometimes i can have a, such a myopic view of wanting to do something and no matter how hard you try it can not mm-hmm. and that's also the other side that maybe people don't talk about which is why I look at it more as a craft is it's like you can want a dish to work and in your head it does but that doesn't mean it that doesn't mean it does mm. you know you've also got to think about the restaurant that you're serving it in the clientele that you're working to the seasonality the size of your kitchen how many staff you've got you know there's all those elements which are all part of the equation mm. you can't just turn to your team and say hey i want to do this dish forsaking all others whether it's going to cause you and the restaurant issues just to get this one piece of perfection. Yeah. You've got to be aware of human equation for want of a better way of putting it that you can't inflict a poorly designed dish on your kitchen just because your ego says I want to serve this so we will achieve it. Right. You know. 
that's almost I would think it a reflection of a bygone era of kitchens where mm. it's you know we'll flog the kitchen to death just get the head chef's vision <laughs> which yeah that causes a myriad of issues mm. are those ideas uh, forthcoming so if you, you know, how often do you cha- how often do you change the menu how often do you do specials the specials can be I mean, especially for us here, is generally there'll be one or two on a day or a night or, or a service, shall we say, mm. um, depending on, you know, we get a call from Two Hands, the fish supplier, and what they're getting, you know, this week, I know they've got Nanagai coming in and things like that, and so then it's like, well, what do I, you know, how am I feeling, or uh, it can just be a conversation that Jordan and I have, or one our Harry, our apprentice, or Dave, or even Tom in front of house, you know, like, we'll be talking, and we'll be like, actually... You know, so for us, we're quite fortunate due to the size of the venue that we only are 38 seats thereabouts. Um, we have the ability to change and, and kind of do specials easier than you'll do at bigger venues. Um, but we reprint even our a la carte menu weekly, mm. you know, um, because things change. And because of the size of us, you know, if we get a call from our fish guys saying, hey, this didn't come in this morning, but we've got, you know, for instance, we don't have flathead, we've got lovely dory. It's like, great, we'll take the dory, let's do it. You know, so we'll do the current dish on the menu, which is um, sauce grenoblat with uh, compi celeriac, you know, and, and John Dory. And that was sort of came out of a bit of a quick change of us having to think on the fly a little as a special and then we kind of tweaked it and we were really happy with it. We're like, well, actually, let's move this to the menu. Um, it also just keeps myself engaged. Mm. It keeps the, the team engaged because mm. there's something different for them to see, to learn, to do. The places I've worked in my career which changed the menu more regularly were definitely the ones where I felt more fulfilled mm. and challenged. So I think to myself, well, and even now, you know, like, if that's how I feel, surely I would think in their own way that's how our team feels, mm. you know. You don't just want to become a robot that's serving the same thing day in, day out. Like that's, at least for me, I don't find that enjoyable at all. Mm. And without speaking for him, I would almost say Jordan feels 100% the same way, mm. you know, that that creates an atmosphere in the kitchen that's fun and interesting and engaging because there's always something new to try to do to talk about you know to engage with the people with the, with the guys you know and get input from them it's like hey what do you think of this how can we change that how can we trace this yo you've got an idea that you know like it just creates a more interesting dynamic mm. yeah, absolutely and so you, you were in England did you were you do you anywhere else overseas uh, I did a year in Paris. Oh, whereabouts in Paris? Uh, I started off at a place called Restaurant Papillon by Christophe Santin. Uh, he was the former exec chef of Le Maurice and Plaza Athenay for Alain Ducasse for a very long time. Wow. Uh, yeah. I walked in there. Did you I, speak French? I did not. <laughs> I now speak even less than Jordan. Because um, oh, I tested him. I won't test him. No, my. No. <laughs> I can get by in a kitchen, let's put it that way. Uh, so, yeah, I went over, a very good friend of mine has a, always in the process of setting up his own restaurant, um, but he went over to do the year working holiday visa, and for two or three months he badgered me, saying, hey, you should come over, you should come over, you should come over. So I did, 
had a very supportive partner at the time, which was probably didn't give her enough credit to say that she's definitely one of the reasons why I bit the bullet and went over because she was so supportive of it um, and about two weeks out from getting on the plane visas all organized all this sort of stuff the mate of mine that was over there sort of sat in the bed like all right well now that you're coming here's the truth it's incredibly hard to find somewhere to live it's incredibly hard to get a bank account it's incredible you know like um, in a funny jovial way because at the end of it is like but I'll help you with all of it yeah um, so I went over there completely, like, I'd never left the country at this point. So when was that? 2015, 2016. Right, yep. Yeah, and end of, middle of 2016, middle of 2016. Um, I went over there, had a list of restaurants I wanted to go sort of check out. The usual ones that a lot of people looked into, especially back then, you know, like Septim, things like that. Like, if you don't speak a word of French, Septim won't even touch you. They will not even entertain the fact you know it's fine you know you're working to a level like that I get it now but at the time I was like uh, but then there was this restaurant which had only been open maybe a couple of months called Papillon uh, based upon the classic novel about the prisoner on the island and all that sort of that's where the name came from but it also you know nicely means butterfly in French mm. um, I still actually have one about uh, yeah I think I still do bizarrely um, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, have a menu clip, Aww. as was the logo. That's cute. Um, and I remembered seeing the food that they were doing, and obviously I read about Christoph, their head chef and owner, and I just thought, stuff it, I'll, I'll apply there, thinking, you know, there's no way this place is going to give an Australian that doesn't speak a word of a word of French a go. Uh, Christoph got back to me and was like, hey, you know, like we just had a guy leave. What's your French like? And I lied to him and was like, yeah, it's okay. You know, like, like I, I can speak a little bit, you know, like he, speak, he spoke fluent English. Everybody in the kitchen except the chef de cuisine spoke fluent English, which was kind of a funny story. Um, but I went in there, met Christoph, and he has a incredible passion for ACDC. Oh. <laughs> to the point of like, bizarreness like when he first said oh you know ACDC I thought he was just being you know like that typical oh you're Australian I've heard of this band once no no this guy knew all the minor details and knew all their nitty bitty bits about them knew everything about the band had seen them a couple of times you know wow. like uh, but that was a that was a way in essentially um, I remember starting on my first day I was told to start at 8.30 I turned up and everyone had been there from about 6.30 7 o'clock so I was already an hour half late in their eyes, so that was fun. Um, but I only did six months there, but it taught me so much, and I met so many great people. Mm. Um, we sat down for two staff meals a day, lunch and dinner. Wow. Christoph would physically drag you out of the kitchen to make sure you sat down and ate and took some time to yourself. He wouldn't have it. He's like, you know, like, he still expected your work to get done and all this sort of stuff, but he was also very like, well, no, I'm going to sit down with you, you know, like my partner is, you know, the front of house guy, like I want you to stop, I want mm. you to eat. So there was a very good emphasis on a quality of staff meal and a plan for it and all this sort of stuff. Um, but the guys I met there were phenomenal. It was hard working a section where you don't speak really any French, you know, let alone table numbers, let alone learning the menu, you know. Um, but of that small group that I worked with there, the chef de cuisine who didn't speak a word of English yet, we got along through his love of Biggie Smalls. He could rap every word oh. to any Biggie Small song that came on. 
but couldn't actually speak string of English sentence together. Wow. Um, and his love of football. We yeah. just somehow talked about football because the Euro was on at the time. He now has a one-star restaurant in Lille. Um, uh, and then Valentina started with us, who she's in the process of opening her own restaurant in Lille as well. And then Milo, who I probably would not have succeeded at this restaurant if it wasn't for this guy, is running a resort. Oh, I can't even remember where. In like a little French principality, so to speak, oh, yeah. like in the North Africa, you know, that kind yeah. of part of the world. Um, but they're all so welcoming and I mean they had fun sometimes at my expense about oh, <laughs> the Australian you know like I vividly remember Alan Passard coming in for dinner because oh. he knew Christophe because you know they're all from that world and I vividly remember Christophe bringing him in and saying to him in French oh this is our surfer he's the Australian ha 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 uh, type yeah. stuff yeah. and I was just like in awe of <laughs> Alan Passard that I was just like <sighs> yeah. um, but I learnt a lot, and also just the way Christoph looked at food. Someone from coming from such a high-end, hardcore, he'd only ever really done two or three star his whole career, to now serving it kind of like a bistro-y, brasserie, wanting to put more emphasis on uh, quality of food, but still also like making sure it's at least somewhat healthy, uh, and the guest experience, and a bit more jovial, and a bit more interactive and fun, you know? There was always music pumping in the kitchen and in the dining room. At one point, he had a, like, to my shoulder, so we'll say, like, a metre and a bit figurine of the Flash in the <laughs> restaurant just because he wanted to, you know? Yeah, like, it yeah, was very no. much, this is my space now. I want to do with it as I see fit, yeah. um, which was very cool. I left there after about six months, and the partner that was supportive to get me over there came back to Australia, and, you know, life took its toll. Um, and Jordan, funnily enough, was in Paris at the same time, uh, and I had lunch with him and the guy that convinced me to get over there. Uh, and there was an, a restaurant in Belgium called Inderwolf, which had just put an ad up on Instagram or a call out for a chef to party. Uh, and I was like, oh, I, you know, I'd never get a, taken there, blah, blah, blah. And they'd never accept me, you know, type thing, because the restaurant was closing. Um, and Hans and Jordan both said to me at lunch at Le Comptoir, go home, apply for it, if you get it, we'll pay for your train ticket to get you there. And we'll give you somewhere to store your stuff. You know. Uh, so obviously you got it. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't get the job, but I got. they gave me a stage to finish. Oh, but they good. gave me accommodation and all that sort of stuff included. Um, cool. Was that in the Flemish-speaking part? Yeah. Yeah. On the, Flemish, on the French-Belgian border. Um, the books on the shelf over there. Uh, and it was fortunately, I would think because of Alistair, the guy who's now in Beechworth. He was the chef de cuisine, or the shed chef de cuisine, or with a guy called Gabby, who's also an absolute legend. Um, he's from Canberra, he's from Australia, so he knew the restaurants that were on my resume that I sent through, you know, so it wasn't such a, like, who is this guy? I was like, oh, you know, um, as a stage, and I did, I want to say... September through to December when they closed hmm. and that was a very pinnacle point in changing my view on food my view on kitchens because for such a big kitchen there was no yelling no screaming no bullying no nothing it was just regimented but not in like a militarized zone more in just kind of like well okay when we clean the floors this is how we do it this person does that. you know it was just 
it was regimented in like a respectful way I think you know they when they sit you down when you start on your first day they're like hey you know even if you are a star we expect you to be the role of a chef to party you know you treat everybody with respect if you need to talk to the person calling the pass which was Gabby during service you don't scream out across the kitchen you say Gabby may I and you wait for him to return to talk to you you know uh, there was just those sorts of things in place that it was just there's no need to yell or to scream or to slam fridges or you know some of the things that happen in kitchens that are just considered okay that was it was just like no there's no need for that mm. it doesn't make you better at your job mm. um and just the food that i'd never seen anything like it you know uh and just being there for the closure of that we had everybody in from sergio herman through to Rene Rizepi, through to uh inaki you know bertrand so chateaubriand and sep team uh, Atushi Tanaka from you know like everybody was coming to get there one last time type thing wow um, I've met some lifelong friends you know uh, which I would say pretty much all of them have gone on to do some amazing things um, but it just changed my perception of kitchens so for you that that step of going overseas was a really important part of your yeah journey. I would almost for want of a better way of looking at it, see it as like a finishing school, if you will, if you want to look at it that way. That, and I mean, I had a chef even refer to it that way to me once. Um, Nobu was just kind of like, because he uh, actually did a lot of time working in New Zealand as well. Um, he went to France and, and worked at Rubichon and he didn't speak a word of French at the time. Um, but for me, it was just that kind of, that goal but I didn't want to do there's nothing wrong with it but personally I didn't want to do the, the, the typical shall I say Australian chef goes to London I know some amazing cooks that have done that and excelled at it and doing amazing things now and they're good friends of mine And I, but for me that just didn't feel right I uh, wanted to do um to something different so I went to Paris and then I went to Belgium and then I went back to Paris um, and then came back to Australia and to England and blah 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 so when you were in England you went in London or no what? I was in the middle of West Yorkshire Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good accent. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, there were a few farmers that we dealt with there that I did not understand a single word they said <laughs> like they dropped off animals to us because we dealt only in whole rare breed animals at this restaurant um and they'd pull up in the truck after collecting it from the avatar and things like that. And I swear to God, I'd just look at them and just be like, I'm going to get one of the local kids for you because, cool, I did. Yep. And then they just open <laughs> so the truck great. and I'd be like, oh, you're here to drop off the lamb. Oh, awesome. Yeah, nice. Thanks, <laughs> thanks mate. You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was with Alistair and his partner, Amy. Yeah. Uh, who I met, they were both, he was the... Chef Cuisine in Belgium, and she was the Somme or the restaurant manager of the Somme in, in Belgium. Wow. And it was their own space. Uh, to this day, I don't know anybody that does food like Al. The way he looks at it, the way he thinks about it, the way he does like, it, it, it's, yeah. Have you been to see him in Beetroot? No, he's only just been back, oh. I think, about a month. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and just the way he worked, and he ran the kitchen. He was very much one of the one of the key people, you know, that was 
there's no need for shouting there's no need you know like you can just talk you mm. know like be respectful be kind you know you still work incredibly hard but he was definitely always a, a push for what is now considered, I suppose, a new way of doing things. But for him, it just always seemed like that's just who he was. Mm. You know, he's got misos now out in Beechworth, as far as I know, that are like 10 years old that he made, you know, when he was working out there years ago. Wow, wow. That he stored at someone's house. That's amazing. Um, wow. Yeah, he's a... I it's forward thinking. <laughs> but that's this guy but let's not I don't want to get caught up on Al I have so much respect and and tell me about the man but because it seems like you've got another passion in running and it feels (laughs) like that could be a metaphor for (laughs) kitchens as well are you a sprinter or a long distance distance? I can't sprint to save my life Um, put me anything 10k's and above and I'm very happy tell me to sprint 200 metres I'll do it but I will not enjoy it so do, do do the two coexist then like you know because I feel like it's a marathon in the kitchen and you need fitness and everything am I pushing here pushing too far Uh, (laughs) maybe pushing but I definitely (laughs) think a lot of chefs all have without sounding you know cliched again you get to that point in this job where whether it be running or golf or cycling or I think it's more you look for a pursuit that is kind of all-encompassing, you know, because your job is is just that. It's all-encompassing. And it takes up every bit of focus, or bouldering even, you know, is another one, which I do a bit. But you find that outlet or that avenue that you can't really think about much else. Yeah. Or if you can, it's in a way that is kind of like free-flowing thought. You know, when I'm running, I can work through stuff in my head. I can work through dishes. I can not... And it's never like I'm going to go for a run to figure this dish out. But your brain works differently, mm. you know. And so that's why I definitely enjoy it. And also it's just... <laughs> As you all get older, you all start to realise, we all start to realise we actually have to put look after our bodies. Yeah. You know, and especially in this job where you're asking a lot of it, mm. you know. So, I enjoy running because it's a disconnect, but also because it, I feel better for it. My headspace is better for it, which is a large factor. Um, but, I don't know, it's also, I'm doing the Sandy Point in about two and a half weeks. I did the Great Ocean Road in half, which was amazing. Like, running along the Great Ocean Road with no cars and you're running down, like, it's a pretty picturesque, great part of the world to say, hey, I've run (laughs) along that road. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, By the end of it, I was definitely, because I was sick the week of doing it, that wasn't a great way to, but just to enjoy that, Mm. just that disconnect from everything, it's like, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm going to put some music on, turn my phone on to do not disturb and go slog out 10, 15, 20 k's. Yeah, look, I like exercising, but that doesn't sound that <laughs> enjoyable to me, but that's, I'm glad it's, that you love it. That's good. <laughs> Don't worry, Jordan thinks the same. Um, <laughs> well, look, with all that in mind, because you've had lots of experiences and you seem to, um, well, you're obviously a very thoughtful human in the way that you well you did say overthink but I think let's say thoughtful about the way that you approach um, (laughs) cooking and life what would your advice be to someone who was thinking about becoming a chef 
thinking about becoming a chef I would say watch Jamie Oliver The Naked Chef mm. the originals I mean that definitely had an influence on me I know it's definitely had an influence on other cooks in my generation not for any other reason but that those early series where like he was sliding down the spiral staircase and introducing the world to um, Parmaham you know like as silly as it all sounds and we look back at it now with a bit of a laugh and a giggle right but I know for me it was interesting and engaging because the format was different and new because one so you know if you're thinking about becoming a chef so you kind of use that as a gauge to like do you actually like food mm. because this job will chew you up and spit you out if you don't be careful and if you don't love it and if you don't really love it mm. the days where you've had not really much sleep you've got a full restaurant the dishwasher's broken you're the young apprentice that's now got to do the dishes and hold the section down if you don't really love what you're doing it's gonna it's gonna hurt if the, even if you do it's not so it's not gonna hurt any less but I've come to realize at least in myself I, I there's no I fucking love there's no other way to put it I do apologize <laughs> this job be it the cooking be it the social interaction be it the guests be it, you know, the, the whole thing I, I, I really really do and if you're thinking of becoming a chef eat as much as you can cook at home as much as you can and then get some experience in a kitchen Generally, I mean, from my own experience, I would say in a hotel. There's more to see. I did my apprenticeship at a hotel. And you can see how a pastry section works, how a banqueting section works, how a bistro works, how a fine diner works. I mean, that was where I was. I never did the pastry section because Zorica wouldn't allow me. Um, <laughs> uh, but you can see more. And also, I mean good or bad it also gives you the ability as a young cook starting out this is going to sound somewhat terrible but you won't be necessarily as relied on as heavily mm. initially so you can make more mistakes which is the only way to learn um, that's just from my own experience then when I look back on my apprenticeship the fact that I could do 150 people banquets you know, the fine dining restaurant, the pool bar, the buffet, you know, like, depending on what kitchen I was in, I wasn't relied on to do much initially. It was, hey, slice some meats, do some salads, whatever. And then if I wanted more and pushed more, yeah, I got put into the fine diner, you know, like I got to progress more. But it also meant that it wasn't like some places where I've heard of, you know, the horror stories of the industry where you've got a young apprentice who just gets flogged to death, never really gets off a section, never really gets to progress anywhere, and it's just kind of used as cheap labour. That's definitely stereotyping the industry at large. But I would say as a young cook, watch The Naked Chef just for a laugh. Um, eat as much as you can in all varying types of ways you can and get some work experience. That's what I did once I started doing my job in the kitchen. 
I did some work experience at the place that I took my apprenticeship about. You know, I did a week on my own school holidays to do, you know, work experience at this place. And that definitely, you know, introduced me to some cool people that I know even now, very good friends. This is 17, 18 years ago. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a different thing. I've Wanting to become a chef and a young chef are two very different things. Mm. So wanting, I would say that, consume as much as you can, whether it be TikTok, like the kids are doing these days, well, I sound old. Um, you know, but, but figure out what interests you about food or hospitality and why you're doing it, or at least try to understand why you're doing it. When I started my apprenticeship, I wanted a three-star restaurant. Yeah. I wanted a three-star restaurant in Australia. Do I want that anymore? No. But that, that was my goal, you know, because I got called out by the owner of the hotel in a whole hotel meeting about what we were gonna do and transition to, and he literally looked at me. I'd been there maybe two weeks, and I was sat there in the ballroom with my arms crossed, and he said, why does it look like you don't wanna be here? And I said, because I don't. Yeah. And he was like, well, what? And I was like, well, I've got all this stuff and jobs and work to do. And then he asked, he's like, yeah, but what do you want to get out of working here? And I was like, I want to become a chef. I've started here three weeks. I want to get a three-star restaurant, you know? So figure out what you want out of this career. Otherwise, if it's just kind of like, oh, I'll cook for now or, or while I'm at uni or whatever. I love that. We need people in the industry like that, you know? That's not to discredit them but this job will chew you up and spit you out if you don't really know why you're doing it. More so, I would say, than any other job. Yeah. Not that I can really comment to because I've never read any of them. Well, I feel like I could talk to you for hours because you've got a lot of stories to, nah, to tell. It's just because I don't know how to shut up, let's be honest. <laughs> but I'm going to let you go back to your Monday off. But thank you, yeah, It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Ben Parkinson at Pippi's Kiosk. You can check out all the goodness on Instagram at Pippi's Kiosk, that's P-I-P-I-S-K-I-O-S-K. There are some pretty amazing photos of sunsets, of course the incredible food, and some sparkling water. What more could you want? Oh, when I say sparkling water, I mean the sea. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more stories from other chefs, I'm on Instagram at Conversation with a Chef. You can read the chat and become a subscriber, which is good for me because, well, I feel loved and like someone's actually reading it, and good for you because you get to know whenever there's a new conversation up. That's at www.conversationwithachef.com. I would love it, again, asking a lot of you today, but if you told a friend about my chats, and you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts, Once again, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day and bon appétit.